I wanted to start and talk just before we open our Bibles. We'll be in Genesis 23 if your app is incredibly slow. Uh, there's a guy in our church, uh, his name is John Champion. Uh, John's going on comfort care this afternoon. He, uh, he has uh, late-stage cancer and uh, is looking at the end of his life. And I visited him a couple times this week, and his wife called me this morning. I'm going to visit him this afternoon. And uh, one of the things that he talked about with me is uh, in his life, in John's life, he uh, actually said his words to me uh, where uh, he would self-identify as an atheist, but when his hindquarters, not his word, got in a crack, he turned to God, and when he turned to God, there was the grove, and he was a part of the grove. And you might not know him. Uh, he would sit at the back, usually with my son, and my son recognized him as the old guy with the awesome hat. And uh, so he is, uh, so we've been visiting this week a bit and talking and praying together and those kinds of things. And one of the things he talked about that he's excited about is uh, that someday I'm going to get to heaven, me, and go around the corner and, and there's going to be John. And he's going to be like, hey, welcome, and welcome me in. And he's like, this is what I hope it's like that we're, because uh, of how connected we are here on earth, that we'll be insanely connected uh, in heaven and be able to share with the people that we've had an impact with and the relationships that we've had. And, and I, I always uh, love to be able to it's a holy thing for me to be able to pray with people near the end of their life uh, because uh, it's really easy to believe in heaven uh, when you're young and healthy and fearless and you wear a helmet all the time, you know? But when you're like the doctor saying, hey, this is it, all of a sudden that belief matters, right? And so uh, we were talking about that and I got thinking about heaven and, and I think about heaven a lot because it's my preferred place to be. And, uh, and, and when you see... A lot of the things that are happening uh, in our world this week, uh, it is, I'm reminded that heaven is a place uh, that it tells me that there's no more pain there, and there's no more crying there, and there's people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation and every kind of person that existed in history will be there and will be together and will sing the same songs, and we will be very much focused on being together in the presence of God rather than apart. Uh, which is, I think, all of us would agree, a preferred future. Uh, if you are thinking about, should I go to heaven or should I go to hell, I would say this is better. Uh, and all of us would. Uh, then I uh, think about this and I pray about this, and I pray a lot, uh, and I talk to God about these things a lot, things that I don't know, uh, that I don't like, but I don't know what to do about. And, uh, uh, and I see Jesus praying, uh, while he lived on earth, that may it be uh, on earth as it is in heaven. And the, the real uh, task or the goal or the work of the Christian is to create heaven here on earth. A lot of people talk about it in a way of saying that we're redeeming, that we're moving slowly to this heaven reality. And sometimes we think, oh, that's impossible. Uh, but the task of the Christian is to continually move in that direction, to continually move in a direction of saying, this is, like God working in this situation that seems impossible is possible. And, and I look at it and I consider, like, how could God work in this? And, and I was drawn to this verse, and I have a lot of conversations about it, and I put this verse in the weekly email, if you get the weekly email, but it's uh, 2 Chronicles 7.14 says this, that uh, 
Huh. If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and turn from their, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear their prayers and I will heal their land. Uh, it is one of those uh, verses uh, that gives like almost direct instruction. And I don't think it, you can treat God like a, a vending machine, like I'm going to put in prayer and seeking your face and repenting of my wickedness and therefore you have to heal my land. Because uh, God doesn't promise instantaneous. God isn't the microwave in your kitchen. Um, but there is something to uh, the privilege that Christians have in working for the redemption of the world. And no matter where you stand or what your opinions are or the level of pain that you experience this week, um, just from the way that our, just from the scenes that we saw in our culture that are terrifying and sickening, and awful all the way around. Uh, we would all agree on this. We would all agree on this. Uh, the Christian is called to humble themselves, uh, to seek God's face, and to repent of our own wicked ways. Uh, and, and that's not a, like, oh, we're bad, they're good thing. It's a, I can change myself. I, can, I can't necessarily change everyone else. Uh, and so I wanted to pray together. Uh, because I think heaven matters, if that makes sense. It matters a lot to my friend John, and it's going to matter a lot later this evening to my friend John because he's going to be able to run around and dance a lot better than he can right now. Uh, but it matters because I think that all of us would like to be able to run around and dance much better than we can right now. And not just because you're a bad dancer, but because the weight of things in our world is sometimes overwhelming. Uh, and sometimes uh, confusing, and sometimes intimidating. And so I'd like to pray together, and, uh, and that might be a bit weird. We don't normally do like extended prayer times in our church, because um, uh, we like this to be this kind of positive experience and stuff like that. But uh, I'd really like to do this, if that's all right. And uh, to, the Bible calls us, people who call ourselves by the name of God, uh, to humble ourselves. And uh, humbling ourselves means well, we don't have the answer. Uh, we don't have, uh, we don't know that we are admitting our weaknesses. And when we're able to admit that and admit our inabilities, then we're able to actually live into Christ's abilities. And so we're going to humble ourselves and seek God's face and turn from anything wicked in our own ways. And, uh, and, and maybe things we don't know, maybe things we do know, uh, but to be able to look at our own hearts and say, God, I want to be a part of redemption, uh, and I want to be a part of moving things in a positive direction. And I don't even know what that means, uh, but I want to do that. So we're going to pray together, and uh, it'll kind of pray for a while. So uh, if that's all right, we can do that, and you can, uh, then we'll open our Bibles. Uh, Jesus, we want to thank you that you intercede on our behalf uh, to God. We want to thank you that that's what you do, that we know that on our behalf uh, you are speaking to God the Father, and uh, I don't understand the theology of the Trinity in this situation, but I understand that this is what the Scripture teaches me. And I want to thank you that your Spirit intercedes on our behalf when we don't know what to say and we just have groans or sighs, uh, and we just 
um, want to, Lord, come before you as a community of believers, as a people who call ourselves by your name, and humble ourselves to the point of saying that, uh, that we depend on you, and we rely on you, and we see no solution to the problems of our world this week or any week outside of you. There are no solutions eternally outside of Jesus. And so we pray um, very clearly, Lord, for the families of those who lost their lives this week. And we pray for the families and friends of those who were affected by violence this week. And we pray against violence. Because uh, every one of us sees a preferred future in heaven, and we pray that as it is in heaven, it would be on earth. We humble ourselves to be able to say that we would like to seek your face and know you in such a way that we can be a part of the redemption of our world. Some of us, God, here are um, play more personal roles with what went on this week than others. And some of us are um, scared. Some of us are uh, nervous or have anxiety. Some of us want to just turn it off and do something different and just walk away from it because it is a difficult thing that we are walking through as a people. And uh, God, I pray for your strength and I pray for your guidance. The same things that Jesus prayed for when he was on earth. May you give us everything we need to do everything you have for us. May you not quit on us. May we seek your face and turn from our own wicked ways so that you will heal our land. And God, may you be patient because I'm not the first one to pray and this isn't my first prayer this week and we're all praying this together and we basically intend on badgering you until you do what we ask. Like an annoying kid that wants root beer Pop-Tarts, we won't quit until you heal our land. May your grace work, and may your mercy be true. Allow us to experience um, peace. And not just like peace in bad situations, but may you work in our country. Like I, I'm not even sure this is possible, God, but we're going to pray it anyways because we uh, ask that you would help us with our unbelief, but we would pray for peace among all people in our world today. Amen. Let's, uh, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Genesis 23. And Genesis 23 isn't what I intended to preach this week because it because we're trying to work our way through Genesis and get through it by the end of the summer. Uh, but we're going to talk about it anyways. And I have some theological things I want to talk about and then some life things that I want to talk about, if that's all right. So I'm going to read all the way through it. It will be on the screen. And, uh, and then we can uh, kind of want to talk about where this goes and what it means. Abraham, um, so you know, this is about the death of Sarah. Uh, Sarah is the wife of Abraham. And... Uh, 
her name was actually changed. It was Sarah with an I, and now it's Sarah with an H, and uh, it's changed by God. And uh, she is actually gave birth to uh, two children, um, and oh, sorry, one child. Abraham had two children, uh, but uh, Sarah actually gave her maiden uh, to Abraham as a wife, which is a weird cultural thing that is not appropriate today. Uh, but uh, so Abraham has this son named Isaac, and uh, later on he has uh, another wife because Sarah dies, and Abraham continues to live and has a whole bunch of other children. But they're not in, uh, they're they're not Isaac, and Isaac is the child of the promise because Sarah was barren, and uh, God promised a child to Sarah, and then they had a child, uh, and and this is um, as much as Abraham is the father of Christianity. He's also the father of Judaism and um, Islam. Uh, All three of those religions would claim descendancy from Abraham. Sarah is the mother, and Sarah is the matriarch. Sarah is the only woman in the Bible who we're told how old she is when she dies. Uh, She is, um, next to the mother of Jesus, the most important woman in the Bible. Uh, and just like Abraham, next to Jesus, is the most important man in the Bible, and probably in human history, not just in the Bible. And so when we read about her death, it's kind of like reading about your death of your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother, and uh, how, if you can think about this in a family sort of way, like this is our story, it's not some story by, about some guy named Abraham, it's our story, and, and we're going to read it that way. So I'm going to read all the way through, and then we'll talk about it. There'll be some description of places and stuff with words I can't say, but I'm going to say them quickly, and we're going to pretend that it's right. Sarah lived to be 127 years old. Uh, She died at Kiriath Arba, and that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went down to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife, and spoke to the Hittites, who were the people of the area. And he said, I am an alien and a stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. And the Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. Then Abraham rose and bowed down before the people of the land. The Hittites. And he said to them, If you are willing to let me bury my dead, then let, listen to me and intercede with Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf. So he will sell me the cave of Machpelah, uh, which belongs to him and is at the end of his field. And ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. And Ephron, the Hittite, was sitting among his people. And he replied to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city, of his city, No, my lord, he said, listen to me, I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of my people, bury your dead. Again, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron, in their hearing, listen to me, if you will, I will pay the price of the field, accept it from me so I can bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, Listen to me, my lord. The land, the land is worth 400 shekels of silver. But what is that between me and you? 
bury your dead. And Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms and weighed out for him the price he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weight current among the merchants. And so Ephron, so Ephron's field in Machpelah near Mamre, which is where there were some big trees where Abraham stayed, both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees within the borders of the field, was deeded to Abraham as his property in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. And afterward, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which is at Hebron in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. Kind of an interesting look into um, ancient Near Eastern transactions in real estate. Abraham is establishing ownership of this cave, and his Hittite friends actually say, well, we're not just going to give you the cave, we'd like to give you the whole field too. And, uh, and, and they just want to give it to you. And Abraham says, well, I won't accept that as a gift. I need to pay you whatever it is worth. And the uh, Hittite man, uh, actually Ephron, had to say the price before Abraham said an offer. Because uh, he, if he negotiated the price, there could be some uh, back talk later. It's like, oh, he didn't pay enough. Or, oh, he talked me down and he really should have paid this much, so he really doesn't own it, I own it. And, uh, but Abraham doesn't negotiate, which is really strange in this culture. Uh, but he's at the gate with all the men, so there's witnesses to that. And this actually sounds just like a contract. Like you have, Archaeologists have found other contracts that sound like this, that say he owns the cave in the field at Macbeth, which is by Mamre, which is by Hebron, because they didn't have like surveys, so they had to say, it's by this, by this, by this, and just by that, then it's the field that everybody knows about and the cave on the end of the field. And he owns all the trees. And there were other uh, like contracts that actually number the trees. And he owns the 18 trees that are inside of that. Uh, they all belong to Abraham now. And so Abraham actually goes down to the people at the death of his wife and wants to buy this... or wants to buy a, just a cave, and the man actually says, well, you can have the cave and the field, and he sells it to him. Which is a strange thing, because he's in the land of Canaan, and Abraham and Sarah are Hebrew people, and to buy or to get land in a place where you don't belong, uh, sometimes you couldn't do that. And so Abraham going to the elders was actually probably a permission thing too. Like, I would like to own property in your country even though I don't belong in your country. Abraham had been traveling around, wandering this kind of semi-nomadic life, but he keeps coming back to this region, enough that they know who he is. He's also wealthy enough. It's difficult to tell how much a shekel is because of the different weights and stuff like that, but it's kind of a common consensus. But 400 shekels is more than you'd make in your lifetime. Uh, Abraham is that kind of wealthy as he travels around. And so when he comes to town and he doesn't sack your town and take over, you're nice to him. <laughs> it's like living next to Canada. <laughs> That's not true at all. It's actually the opposite, but anyways. Uh, <laughs> when uh, Abraham comes and wants to just buy the cave and then he ends up with the field and the cave and then he buries his wife there. You actually uh, can go to a place 
in the West Bank today uh, near Hebron that's actually, which I'm probably saying wrong, but it's actually like Abraham is later buried there and a couple of other patriarchs are buried there. And of course, so people built churches on top of it. And the church was originally a mosque. Uh, and then the crusaders came and took it and turned the mosque into a church and said the Muslim people who are Muslims are not allowed to be here, people who practice Islam. And, uh, and then the, uh, the Islam, armies of Islam came in and took over, and, and then they uh, left, and Jews were only allowed to the fifth step, not allowed inside, and then later on they let them up to the seventh step. It, it's this wildly contentious place right now where there's been Christian churches, mosques, and Jewish synagogues, uh, and it is, it's actually a, a violent place as well. Uh, just last November, there was another, like a drive-by shooting there where somebody of uh, one religion decided that that person of the other religion shouldn't be there. Uh, it is this, uh, like it's considered by religions that have holy sites, the second most holy place in the world, this cave. And Abraham buys this cave. Now, in Genesis chapter 12, the story of Abraham begins. And the story of Abraham begins with God saying, get up, leave your people, and go to the place I will show you. And then God gives Abraham more and more promises. And he gives him promises pretty close to this exact location, a couple miles away, uh, where Mamre is. The Oaks of Mamre is just a couple miles away from the city of Hebron. And so he actually gives him a promise that this land here that's known as Canaan will be your descendants' land. Before Abraham has any kids, he says, all of your descendants will live here. And this is the promise that Abraham lives in. Actual, like, angels visit Abraham and say, hey, we're going to be back next year, and you're going to have kids, or you're going to have a son. And Abraham's wife, Sarah, laughs because she's like, I am well past the age where I need to be having kids. Uh, and, and then they have a kid. And, and the promise of God keeps being fulfilled in Abraham's life. But part of the promise of God in Abraham's life is that his descendants will live in this holy land he will own all of this. It's kind of a strange promise when there's a bunch of people living where God has told you that you get, that you will own. And previous to this, Abraham has some water rights. He doesn't own any land at all, but he has some water rights to some wells so that he can uh, feed his flocks because he has so much livestock and his agricultural wealth is enormous. But Abraham doesn't own any land. And when he buys the field in Mechphila by Mamre, by the big trees, and all the trees on it, it's actually the first piece of the promise of God coming true. God's promise is happening in this story. Now, for me and you to read that, we don't notice that at first, right? Like you read it and went, Wow, this is really repetitive. Like they said the same thing over and over and over again. But that's because it's contractual language. And when you sign a contract, it's the same kind of thing. They say the same thing over and over and over, thinking that they won't end up in court, but everybody ends up in court anyways. So when Abraham goes down to, this, to the men of Hebron and says, I want to buy this cave, he just wants the cave. And the caves would be actually carved out and, and the, the dead would be put there 
and, and then and usually they had like shelves and after they decomposed they would take the bones of the dead and actually either put them in small boxes or move them to the back or of the cave or put them in small boxes and put them somewhere else significant because their ancestors were wildly important to them in this culture. Being from Abraham means something. And Abraham just wants this cave. And then he's given the field as well, but not given. He's given the opportunity to buy it at full price. And when he buys it at full price, what that actually means is the descendants of Abraham own this forever. Which is why it's a contentious site, because people from three different religions that have a hard time getting together all say they're the children of Abraham, and so they all think they own this site. It's awkward. But when awkward is the like, worst description of that, it's horrid. But when Abraham buys this, he buys it for a full price. He doesn't negotiate. He lets them name the price. He has a gang of witnesses there, the men of the city who would be at the gate, where there was kind of like the city council would meet at the gate, who would be the elders. If you stayed alive a long time, you got to be an elder which probably in their time meant very old because they lived so long. But Abraham establishes the promise of God in this field with all the trees in the field and the cave at the end of the field. The promise of God that lasts to this day. But this is the first step. Abraham had lived into this promise of God with his wife and his servants and his nephew who was with him for a while and his extended family and his servants' kids, and his servants' kids' kids. He lives with these people and establishes the first step of the promise. It's an amazingly good story. If you can imagine for yourself, like a pre-1940s, being a Jewish person pre-1940s, and you have this story and you know, that land right there, there's a record. We bought that land. Like that is promised to us, and this story for you would mean everything. Because we're uh, Christians, we believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law, and, and time and place and particular rituals become less and less important, and more and more we are understanding that the Holy Spirit filling us and filling uh, the movement of God actually matters. And so Christians, according to our faith, would fight for a place much less. Probably none of you heard this story and went, yeah, that place belongs to me because biblically I am a son or a daughter of Abraham. I should be able to go there and not pay admission. It's mine. Not true. <laughs> I, I don't know if they charge admission. But getting down in, like the actual cave, you can walk down into the cave. Like, and I don't know if it's really the cave of Abraham. Blah, 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 blah. But you can walk down in there. And if you don't want to believe it, you can just be cranky and there's no Santa or Easter Bunny either, whatever. Who brings all the presents then? But anyways, when, there's middle schoolers here, so I want to keep it real for them. I don't know why your parents are laughing. I don't know why. But when Abraham establishes this, it's the beginning of the promise of God in his life. What Abraham has lived for has become reality. This is the greatest day in Abraham's life. Next to the birth of his son, he has now established a foothold into the promise of God. When does this happen? 
when Abraham's wife dies. The worst day of Abraham's life. Sarah lived 127 years. Uh, she was at most, uh, at most about 13 years younger than Abraham. At the most. Abraham heard from God in Genesis 12 when he was 75 years old. And the next chapter in the story refers to Abraham as being 140. And so it's a little bit less, probably two or three years less than 65 years of marriage at minimum. That means if Abraham said, okay, God called me, you're my wife, let's go. The assumption would be that Abraham was married before that. Abraham's children get married around the age 40, and so we could guess maybe Abraham got, I called it. I said, when I was talking about something important, that would fall down. Good night. I would be mad, but the Bible says the wind is like the moving of the spirit, and so really that's like, oh, some of you are about to talk in tongues, so... <laughs> all right <laughs> if you want to we can do that but let's wait um, <laughs> I'm going to forget my point at the minimum Abraham and Sarah are married 65 years if uh, if they got married when Abraham was around 40 which would be a little more culturally appropriate just according to the other passages in the scripture then they were maybe married about 100 years about a hundred years. Let me ask this. Who's got the, who's, who was married most recently? Raise your hand if you were married like this year. Last year? Two years ago? Good night, people. All right, young people, it's time to get on this. Has anyone been married less than five years? All right, there we go. Now, I imagine that if we asked you, and you didn't know I was going to put you on the spot, but I imagine you love your spouse more right now than you did the day you got married, which is kind of weird because the day... Oh, you're saying no. All right. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know you're joking. But when you got married, you were probably insanely in love, right? Like insane. Like when I got married... I've, I didn't know why anyone else was smiling because I was the luckiest guy in the room. Like, I, like this was really good for me. And that's probably, my parents were probably smiling for that reason. Like, we didn't think, oh, good night, you know? But, <laughs> like, oh, our prayers are answered, you know, and that kind of thing. But there is, I don't know why Heather's parents were smiling. I don't understand that, but... <laughs> But when uh, you've been married a short time. Now, who's been married the longest? Anybody over like 20 years? You can raise your hand. You can own this. Over 30 years, over 40 years, 50 years. Okay, so we're getting close. It's in between 40 and 50. Now, if you love your spouse more at five years, could you imagine how much more you love them at 40 or 50 years? Like, I love my wife significantly more than when I first got married. Significantly because I've discovered the amount of patience it takes to be married to me. <laughs> and I'm a, I'm a much better husband than when I started out as a husband, as most of us husbands would say. And, and just that relationship has grown in ways that I didn't expect, that I couldn't have expected. I didn't have the capacity. And now imagine you're married 100 years and maybe you had a rough week, and this is a bad example. 
All right, but let's think about the good times. Don't, maybe don't think about this week. Think about the time you remembered to do the dishes and you remembered to put the toilet seat down. Like, think about those times. But when you've been married a hundred years and you've gone through the things that they've gone through, it's almost impossible for us to imagine the pain of Abraham when his wife of 65 at the least, 100 at the most years, dies. And God uses that to fulfill the promise that he gave to Abraham. Like the the real thing that's happening here is the worst day in Abraham's life is the thing that God is using to do one of the coolest things that God has ever done in this man's life. God is saying, this might feel terrible, but watch what I'm doing and see if I'm not still here. The last thing that you probably didn't notice is that God is not mentioned in this story. Genesis 23, the only mention of God is from the Hittites saying, oh, we know, uh, sir, listen, you're a mighty prince among us. Uh, and now the, that word prince is actually a prince of God. Uh, but when we translate it in English, that doesn't go right away. But the word prince ends with a lohim, which is actually a reference to God. And so when we read this in English, God's not there. And when there's death and pain and suffering, isn't that the feeling? Where is God in this? And sometimes in that situation where you don't know where God is, God is working in a way that you can't even see. It takes a certain amount of faith to believe that God's working. It really does. Like even on the good days, it takes a certain amount of faith to believe that God is working. It takes a whole different level of faith to believe that God is good and that God is working and that God hasn't abandoned us on the hard days. On the worst day, on the day when the stuff that you love the most and that you hold dearest to your heart departs from you, the people or the things, or the dreams, or the opportunities, leave. And you feel like God is absent. And that feeling is valid, according to the scripture, because God doesn't appear in this story. And yet God is working in a way that fulfills the promise that God made. God has made promises to you. Promises that I talked about before we prayed. Promises that he will always be with you. Promises about the afterlife. Promises about the fruit of the Spirit growing in your life and having a life marked by love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. God has made promises to you about your experience of humanity and your experience of life. And it's kind of hard to believe those promises sometimes when things are going good. It's really hard to believe the promises of God when things aren't going as bad as they've ever been. And I would bet, if you look back on the last year, you can point to the hardest parts of the last year. You remember. 
The hardest parts of the last decade, the hardest parts of the last, how long, 45, 50 years that people have been married? You can probably say that was hard. That was hard. I was wondering where God was and what he was doing. What the scripture teaches us in this random story about a funeral and a real estate purchase is that when you can't see God, it's not that he's not working. It's that you can't see it. And the worst experience of your life is not beyond God's use for the fulfillment of his promises in your life. Things are going to be difficult for you. There's going to be days and weeks and seasons in your life that are actually difficult where you look and say, like, I've given my life to God. Where is he? What is he doing? Why isn't he? And the faith in the redemption that Jesus is working in us and in our cities and in our culture is that when you can't see God, it's because you can't see him. It's not because he's not there. It's not because he's not working. It's not because he isn't fulfilling the promises that he made to you. And those might be general promises in the scripture like I talked about, but they might be specific promises to you where you have this sense that God has promised you certain things in your life and you feel like, will this ever come true? And you're going through an incredibly difficult season. And I don't mean to take a story out of context and give it to you and say that, hey, it happened for her, so it'll happen, or it happened for him, so it'll happen for you. But I mean to say this. His wife of 100 years left him. And that's the same week that God decided to begin the promise. A promise that holds a couple, 3,000 years later. The promises of God are at work in your life currently. And I don't know if you're going through a difficult time right now or if you have promises that you believe God has given you or you feel like you're in this like holding pattern, like God isn't doing what you thought he was going to do in your life. I, I kind of feel like I don't know how this sermon is for you, but I believe this is a message from God for you. That even when you can't see him, He's working to fulfill the promises in your life. That he is faithful, and he is true, and he is patient, and he has not quit. And when you can't see him, it's because you can't see him. It's not because he's not there. Let me pray for us. Let's stand while I pray, if that's all right. God, um, it might not be today, it might not be tomorrow for me, it might not have been recent, it might not be in the near future, but all of us are going to walk through times and seasons in our life that are harder than we expected them to be. We're going to need to let go of things that we don't want to let go of. To be satisfied with lives that we don't want to be satisfied with. God, please, for our sake, remind us of your presence. We thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
and the confirmation of your redemptive work and your salvation to us and for us. And we thank you for that in a way that, God, it's, <laughs> I don't think it's for you. I think it's for us. Allow us to follow you. Allow us to follow you through the good times and through the terrible times. Allow us to know your presence, to see your face. And God, when we can't and we don't know and we don't have an impression of God working, please bring us back to your scripture and your presence in knowing that you have made promises. And my God does not hold out or break his promises. Our caring God, we thank you for your comfort in our life and ask for your movement in all the seasons. By your grace, dependent on your mercy, amen.